This episode of Unconventional Engineering is brought to you by Metrics. Metrics, transforming the industry together. Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to ASME's podcast, Unconventional Engineering. I'm your host, Roy Firestone, and here with my co-host, ASME's Executive Director and CEO, Tom Costabile. Tom, good to see you today. Hello, Roy. It's always great to do another one of these unconventional engineering podcasts with you. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. And, you know, Tom and I are so very pleased to welcome to today's podcast a really, really inspiring woman. Her story is incredible. Kerry Siggins uh, was named CEO of Stone Age, a global leader of high-pressure water blast cleaning equipment at the age of 29 years old, where she has since led the company in building a robust global presence, resulting in double-digit growth year over year. She was uh, one of Colorado's top 25 most influential young professionals. And she was a finalist, by the way, for Colorado's CEO of the year. Carrie is also a sought after keynote speaker, podcast host, author, blogger. You'll hear her incredible story in a few moments. But first, welcome, Carrie, to Unconventional Engineering. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm so honored to be here with you, too. Let me start with this. I, I know, Carrie, that you went to school for mechanical engineering. How has your engineering education really impacted your career? Oh, I would not be where I am today if uh, if I would not have gone to engineering school. It's opened so many doors for me. It taught me how to solve problems. It taught me how to look at the world uh, through a different lens and really about being resilient. And getting through engineering school is not an easy thing to do, uh, as I know many of your listeners and watchers know. Uh, and so it taught me a lot about resiliency and, and how to really push through when you don't think that you're going to be able to make it. You know, you question, like, am I really smart enough to be able to to you know, graduate with this engineering degree, and and uh, I really appreciated the the challenges and the 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 blessings that have come with having an engineering background. That's great, Carrie. You, know, you, you did not stray far from from engineering, uh, yeah. but what led you to working with uh, Stone Edge? So really it was life. <laughs> I was, after I graduated from Colorado School of Mines, I moved to Austin, Texas, and I got an amazing career, uh, started out my career with Eaton Corporation uh, in their electrical switchgear division and medium voltage switchgear. And I learned all about engineering operations and, and manufacturing operations. And that was where my heart was. I loved the complex world of putting all of the parts and pieces of the business together that really comes from an operation, um, an operations management background. And I, you know, got to use a little bit of my engineering degree there, but I really began to find my love for, for people management and operations management. So we can talk a little bit about my, my story of how I got to Durango because it was one of, of, of hardships and a lot of really bad decisions. Uh, but I followed my heart and came back to my roots in Colorado and and I applied for a general manager position, thinking that I would never get it because I was just 28 years old. And uh, and the two founders saw something in me and decided to take a risk and hire me to take over their company. It, it's proved to be a great decision, a great decision. So, and we're glad you're back in the engineering community as well. Yeah, yeah me so, too. Uh, before we get to your story, tell us a little bit about uh, some of the projects you're working on with uh, at Stone Age. And uh, what impact do you hope to have on the, the global engineering community? Absolutely. So 
I mean, I define Stone Age as an engineering company, even though we manufacture products, our roots are in engineering. Um, our two founders met at the Colorado School of Mines. So, uh, so for my alma mater as well. And we develop game-changing products for industrial cleaning. And a lot of people will go like industrial cleaning. What, what does that have to do with anything? Well, it has a lot to do with everything because every product that you use comes from a facility that that is producing that material and that 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 production equipment has to be cleaned and it's usually typically pretty nasty pretty hard stuff so the world wouldn't turn without industrial cleaning and what the founders started the company on was was developing a self-rotary nozzle. So instead of having a mechanical drive that would rotate some sort of a drill to clean out pipes, clean out heat exchangers, or using um, the chemical cleaning or abrasives, which are really environmentally unfriendly, they developed uh, a tool that used the power of 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 water to to spin um, to spin the tool, and that's how they got started. and 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 it was very innovative back in the '70s. And since then, we've really expanded on the development of those tools. And now, where we're going is is building um, semi-automated and now automated equipment that removes the operator, you know, who's over there, usually, you know, shoving a tool down a pipe with a hands on their ho on the hose, which is dangerous. Now, a robot can do all of this, collect data uh, through um, IoT, and it's making the industry safer. It's making the industry more efficient, and it's really giving Giving the facility owners, the, the refineries, the petrochem plants, the food processing plants, data about what's happening in their own production assets. You know, we talked just now about, you did, about developing tools, but I want to talk about developing Kerry. Yeah. Uh, your story is astonishing. You were not tremendously well regarded, even by your own family at first. They thought you'd never amount to anything. Uh, when you got to Austin, you developed a serious drug problem. You almost died. Um, I want to first start with talking about your family upbringing. Yeah, sure. So uh, my mother is an amazing person. She just gave me a lot of rope. <laughs> and I mean, I probably, let's face it, I was probably really hard to control. And so even though she always supported me, she didn't give me a whole lot of guardrails. And so I just learned how to get the attention that I wanted was to push boundaries and to, you know, to take risks and, and even to do some bad things. And when I was 16 years old, she told me, I don't care what you do when you're 18. I don't care if you work at Walmart for the rest of your life, but you are leaving this house because I was making her life a living hell, to be quite frank. And so I was really shocked. Like, you don't think I'm going to college? And she said, what, what decisions are you making that would, would make me believe that you're going to college? You don't go to school now. Oh. You know, look at all, look at the choices that you're making. And I was shocked. Um, I was really shocked that she didn't think that. And really she was using that as a motivator for me, but that's when I decided that's it. Um, I'm great at math and science. I always had, uh, I had a math teacher in high school who really encouraged me to go to engineering school. And so I said, that's it. I'm going to change my life and I'm going to get a degree from Colorado school of mines. I'm going to get a softball scholarship. And I put my head down and I made it happen. Now, as I'm going through all of this, my dad tells me, Oh, I don't know. And if you're smart enough to graduate from engineering school, 
you know, are you sure you shouldn't go to journalism school, which I am a writer. So, you know, full circle, I could see where he was coming from, but, but back then, right. I'm 17 years old and I'm like, Oh God, my parents don't believe I can do this. And it was really, really tough. And so I was determined to make it through mines and, and, um, and prove everybody wrong. You go to Austin, you're competing against guys in a very, very male dominated world. And you are determined to show that this is, you're not an imposter. You're going to be one of the, more than just one of the guys, you're going to be the number one. You want to show them how tough you were and you developed a really serious drug problem. As I understand it, it, it almost ended in tragedy. You almost died. Yeah. So my drug issue actually started before I moved to Austin and it really stemmed from this whole idea of wanting to be seen, right? Be seen as successful. So I I graduated from mines. I did very well at mines, but I was lost, right? I just put my head down and I did it for somebody else. I didn't do it for myself. And so when you're trying to be somebody, something for, for somebody, for somebody else for so long in your life, which I started, you know, I now understand as a very young child, I didn't know who I was and what I wanted. And so when I started getting attention from, um, you know, people in not so great circles and, and all of a sudden here's this, you know, this small town, Western slope, Colorado girl who went to school of mines at the front of the line at every party and, and really fed into like this dark part of my ego. And so, yeah. So then it became about this boundary pushing and being seen as, you know, as really a badass. And it just fueled this issue with, with drugs. And I moved to Austin to get away from it, but I didn't work on me. And so I just got stuck into this same cycle of, of trying to prove myself, trying to prove that, that I was a boundary pusher, that, that I was better than everybody else. And it was very self-destructive. What got you out of that mess? Yeah, I was a hundred percent not being able to go to work. So I define myself by being a hard worker. I have always worked hard. Always. I started, I had my first job when I was 11 years old. I was running my grandparents, um, uh, a portion of my grandparents, uh, sporting good, uh, uh, chain when I was 17 years old. I always defined by myself by how hard I worked. So even though I had this drug issue, I always went to work always, no matter how bad it was. And so when I overdosed in 2006 and I was determined to not let anybody know, because that would, you know, obviously not make people see me as a badass, right. As I'm laying on, on the floor of my apartment, um, I couldn't get out of bed for three days. And that was what broke it. It was, I am a fraud. I am not really successful. I am not living a meaningful life. I am not using my intelligence and my ability to lead in any positive way. And so that was it for me when I couldn't go to work for three days. Carrie, it's it's an amazing story. The lessons that you learned from this, uh, tell us, what are you doing with regards to carrying those lessons forward as a CEO Uh of an engineering company? And and Uh by the way, an engineering company, which uh, engineering tends to be male dominated. So yeah, I I mean I, I I'm in my dream job. I I love what I do. I can't even imagine running any kind of company other than an engineering company or something that has um, has 
deep roots within engineering is where my roots come from too. So I think that's part of the reason why I've been able to be successful is that I've been able to combine, you know, my, my people skills with my engineering skills and create value. And what I'm really carrying forward is, is this whole idea that most of us at some point in our life have imposter syndrome. And a lot of people think like, maybe that's just a female thing, um, or that it's really not that big of a deal, but I believe that it is the hidden thorn in corporation side, because when you're pretending to be something that you're not somebody, you're not, you cannot lead authentically. And it causes you to make compromises with yourself. And it allows you to maybe tell a little bit of a lie, right. To protect yourself. And then you're cutting a corner and then maybe it leads to some unethical decisions. And, and I believe that companies can get themselves into significant issues if they don't address helping leaders really find that authentic voice. I run my company with transparency, with vulnerability, with authenticity, and it shows up not just in talking about stuff like this, but in how we deal with problems with our customers, right? When a product fails in the in, in the in on a, on a job site in the market, when you know we screw up on an order, we own it and we deal with everything with this transparency, vulnerability, and this whole idea that we have flaws too, and we're going to make sure that we help our customers through it. So it's really woven throughout everything that we do as an organization. That's great. What do you think we can do to encourage uh, more women to enter in the engineering field? Yeah, I thought a lot about that. It's tough. Um, I think it absolutely starts at a young age. If I did not have my trig and calculus teacher telling me about engineering and really encouraging me, I would have never considered it. And so I think it starts at a young age. I think, you know, women in STEM programs from starting at, uh, at elementary school age and really weaving that in, not just about the technical aspects of it, but all of the other enriching things that you get from an engineering degree. We need to talk about that because women approach the world differently. And so if we can weave in this whole idea of not just, you know, being an engineer and solving technical problems, designing things, but really the art that comes into it and the people aspect that can come into it, then I think that that we'll get a lot more women involved in, in engineering, but it has to start at that young age. Um, I, I really believe we need more programs at elementary school, middle school, junior high school, high school levels that, um, that help uh, young women gain the confidence that they need to be able to go into that career and also realize what that career can do for them or what that education can do for them from a career perspective. Gary, I agree with you. Only I would ask this question. Does leadership look different in the engineering field than some of the other fields that you've been with? Uh, yes and no. Um, you know, leadership is such a personal um, an individual thing, and there's no cookie cutter way. Uh, but I do think leading really brilliant engineers takes something special because you have to inspire them. And some are inspired with, you know, a big idea. And I want to go in this direction. And some are inspired with, 
a rigorous process I'm going to follow to design this. And, you know, it's less about the impact that it might have on a market. Right. And so you have a really broad spectrum with really brilliant people um, who may not be the best communicators and to be able to crack that nut and get the best of them and, and help them develop their self-leadership skills uh, is I think takes a, a, a unique person. And because I started with the company when we were so small, 8 million in revenue, I have close relationships with the engineers because I have an engineering background, I can speak their language. And I think that, that we inspire more creativity, more innovation from our engineers because of that. Um, I think CEOs who don't necessarily have that background, I think struggle maybe to understand how to inspire engineers to, to be their very best, to care about more than the problem that's right there in front of them. So I would say, yeah, it, it is, it is a little bit different than, you know, than, than, uh, you know, a more of a sales driven organization or even a peer manufacturing organization. Yeah. And I, I would agree with you, you know, my own career, I've spanned many different sectors. Uh, I still use my engineering training uh, to resolve problems. And, you know, I can say that, yeah, I am an engineer and I understand how people communicate. How about the impact you have on future engineers, your story? Do you, do you, do you want to be an inspiration to people or you just want to keep your head down, do your job, do it well, and, and if they hear the story, so be it. Or, or is it really something that's important? Do you want to inspire other, uplift and inspire other people? Hands down. It's, it's, it's part of who I am. It's in my DNA. It's why I'll spend a half an hour, you know, of my time with a perfect stranger halfway across the planet. Uh, it's why I have my podcast, right? It's all about giving a platform to be able to allow other people to share their stories and to inspire through not only my own, but other people's stories. Like we're inspired by stories. Every single one of us is inspired by a story. And that's what people remember. That's what inspires action. That's what inspires movements. And if I can be part of bringing more women into engineering, if I can be part of making the world a safer, cleaner place through the products that, that Stone Age develops, we're an employee-owned company. I'm helping my employees create. We're creating the middle class from the middle out. And I want to be able to show other founders that they can do this too. Um, then that's leaving a positive impact in the world. And you can't do that by keeping your head down and staying focused in your little world. And that is not me. And I totally respect other people that that's where they are. But for me, it's about maximizing impact on the world. So, Karen, I get I get this question all the time. You know, I I I, I mentor a group of uh, college students, and this year I threw in a couple of uh, high school seniors. Um, I can light the I can light the city of San Antonio with the energy that comes out of each one of these meetings. Yeah. And all too often, uh, I get asked this question: If you had to give me one piece of advice as I think about my engineering career, what would that be? I'm always going to go back to the personal side of it understand yourself, be yourself, and you will be successful in anything that you do. When you pretend to be something that you're not, when you try to do something different, when you don't understand who you are, and why you make the decisions that you make, um, life is a lot harder. And so I would tell anybody, like, love yourself first, understand yourself, and you will have a successful engineering career because that is the foundation of success, is self-awareness and self-love. 
Well, I know that's a really non-engineering thing to say, but <laughs> I truly believe it. Yeah, we can it's engineer just, that. It's a, strong, it's a strong message, really is. We want to thank you, Carrie, for taking the time. I'm really honored to get to know both of you, and I really appreciate this opportunity to share a little bit of my story and hopefully inspire others who um, you know, might be struggling with, like, who am I and what do I want to do with my life? And especially inspire young women who are considering careers in technology, careers in engineering. I would not be a CEO where I am today if I did not have my engineering degree. My engineering background has opened up so many doors and taught me so many things. And, and if I can inspire anybody to take that path, um, that's what I want to do. That does it for today's episode of ASME's Unconventional Engineering. Special thanks again to my co-host, ASME Executive Director and CEO, Tom Costabile. And thanks also to all of you listening in. We want to hear from you. We want to know what you think. And we love to hear your suggestions, by the way, for potential future topics and guests. So reach out to anyone on the Unconventional Engineering Production Team, or you can send your email directly to media at asme.org. To become an ASME member, please log on to asme.org or to donate to the ASME Foundation, go to asmefoundation.org for ASME. I'm Roy Firestone. Have a great day, everybody.